0: Murmuration by Mark Griffiths. And that was the latest number from those fresh faced troubadours, John Smith and the Common Men. And isn't it just a totally terrific toe tapper? Hmm, digging that sound, boys. And now to take us up to the news. Sarah Jane Smith clicked off her tiny transistor radio, slipped the device into her overcoat pocket, and slumped back into the creaky deck chair glowering. A long, shuddering sigh escaped her lips. The air inside the dilapidated shed was calm and musty, the restful hush broken only by the distant tinkle of birdsong. But her blood was still frothing with rage. Crocus Pinker. Just thinking of her classmate's name made Sarah groan with frustration and annoyance. Crocus Pinker was the leader of a gaggle of girls in Sarah's year. They patrolled the corridors of Caterham School like vultures, alert for the smallest oddity. A slightly unconventional hairstyle, a pair of heavy and unflattering glasses, last year's threadbare jumper patched for another term, a sprinkling of pink pimples on a chin. Any deviation from the norm by a pupil would be pounced upon by Crocus and her crew as evidence of their owner's complete drippiness and mocked mercilessly. Wherever they roamed, they left a trail of tears and snot in their wake. Had these girls bumped into Genghis Khan himself one morning break, Sarah mused bitterly, they would have reduced the great Mongol warlord to a squirming mass of shame in seconds, with a few well-chosen quips about the cut of his imperial robes. And the worst thing? Crocus wanted Sarah to join her gang. She'd been badgering her about it for weeks. Evidently, she had sensed in Sarah a strong personality, perhaps even a potential rival, and wanted to absorb her into her band of followers. It was the eternal dilemma, thought Sarah, bully or be bullied. She knew it would be wrong to hook up with Crocus and her mob, And yet, she had to admit, there was something darkly thrilling about the idea. Those girls had style. And they had power. Or at least, were as near to power as 14-year-old schoolchildren ever came. They swept along the hallways like a tightly drilled army unit in pigtails and sandals, unstoppable, laughing. Crocus could be superbly witty, in the cruel ways she put people down. Once, to Sarah's horror, she asked Kitty Browning if she could borrow her best dress because her parents were planning a garden party and needed a marquee. But surely the most sensible, the safest course of action for Sarah, was to join her gang, wasn't it? Sarah let out another groan. She was mightily sick of this dilemma which was why in recent days she had taken to sneaking out of the school grounds at lunchtime and holing up alone in this derelict shed about half a mile away, on a disused allotment. Here at least, among the cobwebs, old fertiliser bags and other junk, she could be certain not to encounter Crocus Pinker. Absently, she nibbled at her thumbnail and stared blankly out through the shed's cracked and filthy window to do, what to do, what to do. Suddenly, there was a noise. It was a distant electric throbbing, like the juddering of some vast motor. Sarah listened, her thin brows furrowed, as the sound rose and fell unsteadily in pitch. Humming, chittering. It was like nothing on earth. The sound grew louder, and a shadow, deep and impenetrable, moved across the window of the shed, briefly blotting out the grey November light. Heartbeat quickening, Sarah hauled herself from the deck chair and peered uncertainly through the grimy window. A huge flock, no, a cloud of starlings, was buzzing and thrashing through the air above the allotment. A vast black mass, like a gigantic ink stain on the white page of the overcast sky, the flock swooped and dipped over the scrubby grass, its shape constantly changing. The air overflowed with the birds' sharp cries, and whizzed and hissed with the beating of uncountable pairs of wings. Sarah watched, transfixed. All thoughts of Crocus and her gang swept from her mind. It was one of the most beautiful things she had ever laid eyes on. The flock whipped and undulated through the air as if it was a single huge organism, playful and free as a dolphin. She laughed with delight. There was a word, Sarah knew, for this kind of enormous gathering of starlings. One of those funny collective nouns, like a conspiracy of ravens, or a murder of crows. She had seen a table of them at the back of one of the fat dictionaries in the school library. Murmuration, that was it. A murmuration of starlings. And it was a fitting word too, because the noise of countless darting, whipping birds seemed to Sarah to contain within it the murmuring of a million mysterious voices. It was a strange, inhuman chanting like a demonic choir, on the midnight whisperings of witches. Twisting, forming and reforming, kneading itself like dough, the murmuration continued its ceaseless dance overhead. Sarah noticed a man in thick winter clothing and Wellington boots standing on the edge of the allotment, as enthralled by the starling's dizzying display as she had been. His breath formed tiny white clouds. At his side, straining on a lead, was a thin and nervous-looking greyhound, clearly spooked by the thronging birds. The murmuration seemed to sense the man's presence and drifted lazily towards him through the air, apparently curious. Its constant chittering diminished to a low hum, as if the flock was gathering itself for some new purpose. The greyhound began to bark fiercely, Unperturbed, the immense cloud of birds hovered over them, its form shifting slowly from one abstract blob to another, until it finally settled in the unmistakable shape of a human skull. Sarah gave a silent gasp. The vast floating skull leered down at the man. Then its jaws gaped open, and it dived towards him with terrifying speed. Sarah watched in horror as it swallowed the man whole inside its mass of writhing birds. The screeching and chittering of the starlings intensified to a deafening triumphant roar, drowning out the man's terrified cries. For a few grisly seconds, the enormous floating skull actually appeared to chew. And a moment later a single twisted Wellington boot fell from its mouth and plopped gently onto the grass. The greyhound gave a yelp and sprinted away across the allotment, its lead trailing. Inside the shed, Sarah's blood froze. What in the name of holy flipping heck had she just witnessed? They were only normal starlings, weren't they? the little speckly things you saw hopping along the ground in car parks and suburban gardens. Eyes fixed on the skull, Sarah backed away slowly from the window. Her elbow brushed a stack of terracotta plant pots perched on a rusty metal table, sending them tumbling to the floor with a crash. At the noise, the skull whipped round, tilting slightly to one side as if listening. Slowly it began to drift towards the shed. Panic bloomed in Sarah's stomach like an icy flower. Half the old shed's roof was missing and the structure would offer, as far as she could determine, zero protection from a murmuration of blood-crazed starlings. Heart-thudding, she yanked open the door and sprinted out into the chilly afternoon air, frantically scanning the landscape for cover. The allotment backed onto the gardens of a row of narrow terraced houses, separated by a low chain-link fence. She could easily hurdle that and try to get into one of the houses through its back door. But what if it was locked? What if the homeowner wouldn't let her in? She risked a glance back over her shoulder. The floating skull was hurtling through the air towards her, buzzing, screaming, its empty eye sockets seeming to blaze with inhuman hunger. Sarah gritted her teeth and picked up her pace. What else was there nearby? A graffiti daubed bus shelter? A low clump of anemic looking bushes? A patch of waste ground dotted with fly tipped rubbish? She spotted a yellowing fridge, its door hanging open on one hinge. A couple of rain-sodden mattresses, some broken chairs, a battered-looking old police box. A police box? Weird. With its reassuring blue solidity, the police box stood out from its drab surroundings. Funny that she'd never noticed it before on any of her outings to the shed. Must be a new arrival, she thought. Would its doors be open? They had better be, or she was toast. The noise of the murmuration was almost deafening now. Sarah was half convinced she could feel the skull's hot breath on the back of her neck. Arms outstretched, she vaulted over the smelly mattresses and jammed the heels of both hands against the doors of the police box. They opened easily, with a friendly creak. Pulse hammering in her head, she raced inside, spun on her heel and slammed the door shut, resting her forehead against the frosted glass window set into one of the doors. Outside, she heard the murmuration roaring in frustration, the thousands of seething, screeching starlings surging around the wooden box, cheated of their prey. Breathing heavily, Sarah turned slowly around. Her nose wrinkled, and a look of utter confusion spread across her face. She should have been standing in a dingy wooden kiosk, barely five feet square. Instead, she found herself in a gleaming white room with circular patterned walls. It was a space impossibly, insanely big, to fit inside an ordinary police box. At the centre of the room stood a complicated-looking hexagonal control panel covered in chunky buttons, levers and winking lights. Behind it stood a very tall man with a tangle of thick, curly hair. He wore a tweed coat and an extremely long, multicoloured scarf was wound around his neck. In fact, so preposterously long was this scarf, thought Sarah, that it would have made just as much sense to say that it was wearing him. The man looked up. He appeared surprised to see her, but not displeased. Hello, Sarah Jane. Then he smiled. It was like the sun coming out. Despite the horrific turn her day had taken, Sarah was filled with the sudden wondrous conviction that things might work out after all. She still fainted, though. Sarah's eyes snapped open. She found herself sitting on the floor of the impossibly large white room, her back to the wall. Her nostrils were under assault from noxious fumes wafting from a small glass vial the tall man with the scarf was waving under her nose. Yuck! What's that? Sverdlician smelling salts, the man said, laughing. Intriguing aroma, isn't it? He dropped the vial into the pocket of his tweed coat. You'll be right as rain now. He extended a hand and helped her to her feet. Smells like boiled liver, said Sarah. That, Sarah, is because it's made from the boiled liver of the Swordlixian marsh pig. Sarah snatched her hand away. You did that before used my name. How do you know who I am? I thought you might ask that. I'm called the Doctor, by the way. Sarah folded her arms. Big deal. I've had a bellyful today, mate. I don't mind telling you. First man swallowing starlings, then impossible rooms hiding inside old phone boxes. And now, a total stranger in the world's longest scarf knows my name. What's going on? Did I fall asleep in double mass this morning? The doctor rubbed his chin. Let's see if I can't offer some explanation, shall we? And forgive me if I gloss over the details somewhat, but time, as you must appreciate, is of the essence. I'm all ears. What are you a doctor of, anyway? The doctor flashed a set of pearly whites that would have made the Cheshire cat envious. Oh, most things... Now, let's see, those starlings are acting so peculiarly because they've been possessed by a non-corporeal being known as a tononite. I'm not sure that counts as an explanation, said Sarah, because I'm even more confused now. The doctor chuckled. The tononite is a creature from another dimension. (laughs) What? Sarah started to laugh. But the noise died quickly in her throat. You mean like an... She had to force the word out. An alien? Precisely. Gosh, said Sarah simply. So aliens are real. That was a big thought, almost too big to fit inside her head. She suddenly felt very cold. Her fingers and toes were tingling. I wish I had something clever to say right now, but that's all I have. Gosh. The doctor beamed. Perfectly respectable response. Shows you appreciate the gravity of the situation. Sarah nodded mutely. She could feel the urge to say gosh again, but fought it off and tried to think of an intelligent question to ask. What had it advised in the You Can Be a Journalist book? that her Aunt Lavinia had given her last Christmas. Always ask open questions. Who, what, why, when, where, how. How did this thing get here? Good question, said the Doctor. It entered our dimension by creating a rift in space-time. The tononite is a being of pure information with no bodily form of its own. A literal bad idea. It can only be by taking on an existing physical structure, the way a computer programme exists only in the operations of the machine's circuitry, or a symphony exists only as notes written on paper. And this tononite thing has taken control of that murmuration of starlings. Indeed, the flock of individual creatures has become a single deadly organism. Ha! Sounds like Crocus and her friends. Like who? Never mind. Anyway, it requires a lot of energy to keep a flock of thousands of starlings going, and unfortunately a human being offers the perfect high-protein snack. I saw, said Zara, that poor man. She thought with a shudder of the way his mangled Wellington boot had fallen from the skull's mouth. So where do you fit into this? Is this your job, finding aliens? Well, I'm more of a keen amateur these days, said the doctor, but that's otherwise correct. I tracked the Tononite here from the far side of the glimmerous vacuum cataracts in my TARDIS. Of the... in your... The doctor nodded at the hexagonal console. This old thing, it can travel anywhere in time and space, you know. Sarah laughed nervously and steadied herself against the wall. Of course it can, which I suppose means you're not from Earth either, are you? The doctor's eyes widened mischievously. Not remotely. Any of those smelling salts left? Ha! I think you're coping admirably, Sarah, particularly for one so very young. Sarah stuck a hand on her hip. I'm fourteen and a half, for your information. I'm no baby. And there you go again. How come you know me, but I don't know you? What's the story there? Because we haven't met yet. Not officially. I don't understand. I'm afraid that's all I can say about the matter said the doctor. He picked up a strange-looking gizmo off the control panel, a weird lash-up of brightly coloured wires and circuits, and began to tinker with it. I know that must sound aggravating, but sometimes the universe throws these little annoyances at us, and we have to just accept them and get on with our day. Fine, said Sarah, be all cryptic, see if I care. How do we deal with this tononite Thingy, then. Is this phone box equipped with missile launchers or what? I'm afraid we won't be dealing with it at all, said the doctor. I will. You will stay here in the TARDIS. What? Just stand about like a lemon while you have all the fun? You're joking. No point risking both our lives, Sarah. The future needs you. I may prove rather more dispensable. What? The doctor grinned. He seemed to have twice as many teeth as a normal person. Oh, just being cryptic again. I'm afraid a tendency to spout irritating statements is one of the side effects of time travel. Can't be helped. Now, let the dog see the rabbit. He twisted a dial on the console, and a panel slid open on the wall revealing a large rectangular screen. It showed a view of the allotment outside. Drifting through the air above it could be seen the murmuration of starlings, still in its skull formation. And there she blows. It ought to be slightly sluggish as it digests its elevensies, so now would be an excellent time to disrupt it. Why is it shaped like a skull? a common technique of psychic entities. The idea is to terrify its victims. Apparently flesh seasoned with fear is so much sweeter. Ugh, said Sarah. I wish I hadn't asked you now. How are you going to disrupt it? The doctor held his wires and circuits gizmo aloft proudly. With this white noise generator... White noise is composed of all audible sound frequencies, just as white light is a mixture of all visible colours. One of these sound frequencies should be perfect for jamming the starling's telepathic link. He yanked a lever on the control panel and a set of white double doors whirred open. A wintry breeze whistled in from the allotment outside. Then he reached into the cavernous pocket of his tweed coat, drew out a shabby broad-brimmed hat and screwed it onto his thick mop of hair. Back in a mow. One more question, Doctor. The Doctor paused in the doorway. Yes? Isn't that scarf terribly annoying for a man who goes about fighting alien monsters? Oh, I don't know. Came in rather useful on Castria. Where? Wait and see. He winked and disappeared through the thick double doors. With a whirr, they closed behind him. Sarah sighed and stared around the strange white room, noticing an old wooden hat stand lolling in one corner. This doctor bloke had an odd taste in clothes. Not bad, necessarily, just odd. With a faint smirk, She imagined herself strolling back into school sometime that afternoon. Late, am I? Oh, sorry. You see, I was hanging around in a spaceship while a strange alien man dealt with a rampaging creature from another dimension and I rather lost track of time. I know what you're thinking. Same old excuses. She watched on the TARDIS scanner screen as the doctor edged his way along the chain-link fence towards the murmuration. Every few paces he would stop to make some adjustment to his, what did he call it, white noise something. The vast flock of birds was coasting lazily some distance off and appeared not to have noticed him. As she studied the screen she saw one end of the doctor's long scarf snag on a broken fence link. Half a second later it pulled tight and jerked him backwards with unexpected violence, half-throttling him, and he dropped the white noise generator, which fell onto the scrubby ground and broke into several pieces. Frantically, the doctor scrabbled all around him for the parts of his machine. You ridiculous man, muttered Sarah, you're going to get yourself killed. She turned to the console. Which control had operated the double doors? She tried a few knobs and switches at random, praying the TARDIS didn't have a self-destruct function, until with a loud whir of motors, the double doors swung open. Doctor! With nimble fingers, Sarah unhooked the doctor's unfeasibly long scarf from the fence. He was so intent on collecting the fragments of his device that he had barely noticed he was snared. What are you doing out here? he hissed. He kept one eye on the murmuration, which appeared still not to have noticed them. I told you to stay inside the TARDIS. Lucky for you I didn't, mate. I did say this wardrobe choice was a bit risky, didn't I? Forget the scarf. The white noise generator's broken. Without it, we have no way of disrupting the Toninite's hold on those birds. It just occurred to me, said Sarah. Yes, I know where you might be able to get hold of another white noise thingy. The doctor's eyes widened. You do? Yes, I... A terrifying howl from the sky drowned out the rest of her words. The air filled with the frenzied susurration of thousands of starlings. It's seen us, said the doctor. He scrambled to his feet, stuffing the fragments of the device into his pocket we need to get to safety. They turned towards the TARDIS, but found the murmuration blocking it from view. Sarah's heart lurched. Where now? Anywhere's better than here, and probably best we don't dawdle. Come on! He grabbed her hand, and the pair of them galloped away across the scrubby grass, the doctor's scarf billowing, the murmuration gaining on them by the second. "'Is this other white noise generator close by?' gasped the doctor as they sprinted. Sarah thrust her free hand into the pocket of her overcoat and pulled out her transistor radio. "'It's this. I read somewhere that the static you get between radio stations is the same as white noise. That's right, isn't it?' The doctor took the radio and grinned. Marvelous, Sarah. It's absolutely perfect.' I just need a few seconds to boost the amplitude. He skidded to a halt and drew a slim cylindrical device from his pocket. He pressed it against the radio's loudspeaker and it emitted a high-pitched whine. Hurry up, Doctor, cried Sarah. The birds are getting closer. She stared, frozen with fear, at the black skull-shaped cloud of starlings careering through the air towards them. To her surprise, though, it appeared to be melting away and reforming into what? A strange machine-like creature with a single eye on a stalk and a pair of waving rod-like arms. What's it supposed to be now? She muttered. The doctor didn't look up. He was too busy fiddling with the transistor radio. Probably picked some bogeyman from one of our nightmares, Don't let it trouble you too much, Sarah. Ah, we're in business. He clicked the radio on, and a deafeningly loud burst of static erupted from its tiny speaker. Gosh, you really souped that thing up. Cover your ears, Sarah, said the doctor. It's going to get a lot louder. Sarah did as she was told. The birds were almost upon them now, the air thick with them. The doctor wrenched the radio's volume up to maximum and held the device aloft. The air shook with noise. It felt to Sarah as if she was standing next to a jet engine, her every atom vibrating madly. She risked a glance at the murmuration. Something odd was happening to it. The sharp edges that defined its shape were blurring. Individual birds were breaking away from the flock and flying off in random directions. The entire huge black shape was dissolving away to nothingness before her eyes, like a sugar lump in hot tea. It's working, Doctor! Like drifting smoke, the murmuration dispersed into the afternoon air, clumps and strands of birds thinning out to invisibility. After a few seconds there was not a single starling to be seen in the sky. The doctor clicked off the radio and the roaring wall of white noise abruptly stopped. Sarah removed her hands from her ears. The silence was almost overwhelming. You did it! We did it, Sarah. If it wasn't for you, I'd be starling food. He handed her back the radio. Come on, they set off for the TARDIS. Overhead, a gap appeared in the dreary clouds and a pale November sun showed its face. Somewhere, a single robin trilled. Walking beside the doctor felt somehow very right and comfortable to Sarah. Despite having only just met him, she'd sensed an instant connection with this traveller in space and time. It was all very companionable. So what's become of the bodiless beastie? The Tononite? Gone, said the Doctor. They're rather flighty creatures. A slap on the nose like the one we've just given it, and it retreats through its space-time rift like an eel into its crevice. It'll think twice before trying its luck again in this universe. They had arrived at the TARDIS. The doctor turned to face Sarah. There was a strange, melancholy smile on his face. This is goodbye. Sarah forced a laugh. <laughs> Not going to whisk me away in that thing to the far side of the glimmerous vacuum watsits, then? I wouldn't mind. It's double home economics this afternoon. Impossible, sadly. And you're going to let that stop you because? Ha! Ha! On this occasion, I have no choice. Sarah studied the words inscribed on a panel, set into one of the blue box's doors, trying not to meet his eye. Police telephone. Free for use of public. Advice and assistance obtainable immediately. Officers and cars respond to urgent calls. Pull to open. I... I'll never forget this afternoon... She said quietly, I'll never forget you. This is the most extraordinary, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. Again, there came that melancholy smile from the doctor. Sarah didn't like it as much as his big toothy grin. I'm afraid you will forget, Sarah. She gasped in mock outrage Oh, yeah, meeting space travellers and alien creatures is normal, is it? Barely worth a mention in the school magazine. It's not that. You see, now the Tononite has left our universe, the space-time rift it created will heal. This timeline we're experiencing will be erased, and it'll be as if these events never happened. Sarah's voice cracked. But they did happen. They did. How do you expect me to go back to my normal existence after this? It's not fair. Just be yourself, Sarah. There's no more important job in the universe. She clutched his arm. Will you remember? The doctor smiled again. And this time, it was the real thing, bright as a beacon. He winked until we meet again for the first time. He pushed open the door and went inside. There was a bizarre grinding, trumpeting sound, and the TARDIS faded slowly away. Sarah laughed in astonishment. Yes, she said to herself, grinning. Of course it does that. Sarah blinked. A loud wash of white noise was pouring from the speaker of her transistor radio. It must have drifted out of tune. She switched the device off and slipped it into the pocket of her overcoat. She shivered, suddenly cold. How long had she been sitting here in this deck chair zoned out? A glance at her watch told her she had better make her way back to school. It was double home economics this afternoon, as if the day hadn't been boring enough already. As she folded the deck chair and placed it neatly against the wall of the rickety shed, a thought came to her with striking suddenness. It was the clear and overpowering conviction that Crocus Pinker could go and jump in a lake.